Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. Uh, it is Monday, uh, January the 30th, 2023. We talk to a lot of writers on this show, but the reality is many are called fewer chosen. Many writers want to be bestsellers. Many writers want to uh, get to the top of the New York Times bestseller list, which seems to be the gold standard in books, but few do it. My guest today has. He's unusual. Not only is he's called, but he is chosen. Dean um, Kuntz doesn't really need an introduction. He's sold over 500 million books in 38 languages. Uh, he is a true living legend as a, a fiction writer. I'm going to be careful not to call him a horror writer because he might get off the show. Uh, but he's certainly um, a thriller writer. And he has a new book out, The House at the End of the World. It's just out. And it's already a bestseller. It's got almost a thousand ratings, uh, almost all five stars on Amazon, even though it's only been out a week. So I'm thrilled that he's joining us from his home uh, state uh, and his hometown, Irvine, in Southern California. Dean, welcome. Well, thanks for having me there. So, Dean, I have to start with this dumb question. Hopefully, my questions will improve as we go along. Um, is this something about you which explains why you've sold so many books? I mean, everybody wants 500 million is a ridiculous amount of books. I mean, if you make a dollar a book, you're already worth 500 million, and that's without all the uh, all the movie stuff and everything else. Uh, how have you had so much success? Is there a um, is there a, a, some simple wisdom you can share with our audience? Uh, that may be the only kind of wisdom of which I'm capable. Is the simple kind, uh, but I've I don't know. I don't. My answer to that question is it's a mystery to my wife and I. When we were deciding whether I could write full time. And she made a promise to me. She said, I'll support you for five years. And if you can't make it in five years, you'll never make it. Uh, and I took her up on that. I became a sort of pariah in the family because I was the guy who didn't work, quote unquote. Uh, and our, our discussion at that time was, if I could make $25,000 a year at a reliable uh, pace, then we could make it uh, on the writing alone. Uh, but we never anticipated much more than that. The only reason, the only thing I can resort to to answer that question is looking at who shows up at a book signing, who writes the mail to us, and what they have to say. And I think it comes back to they feel there is within the writing a caring about the average person a sort of uh, kindness toward the average person, even in the middle of all the tension and suspense and scares, there is laughter and there's a kind of joy in life. If that's what they're responding to, then God bless them, because that's uh, sort of what I, as a reader, have always responded to in the work of others. We had um, uh, Jane Ann Krentz on the show a few weeks ago. And she talks about herself as a genre fiction writer. I'm not sure whether you would be comfortable with that term. But she suggests that one of the reasons she's been successful and other genre writers uh, sell so well is because they deal with 
perennial moral issues like uh, honor and how to distinguish between right and wrong. Um, you know, sometimes the word middle, the term middle brow is used to describe best-selling books from, from, from people like her. Do you think that the high end of literature has in some ways lost touch with what readers want or should want? Well, uh, I would point to Dickens as the perfect example. Dickens managed to be highly entertaining, dealing with issues that people cared about in their own lives and liked reading about in the lives of others. So yes, I would say there's some truth in that. Uh, in my lifetime, I've watched, I always say that I read in all genres, which is true, and I consider literary fiction just another genre. Uh, which bristles, uh, raises the hair on the back of the neck of some literary writers. But it's absolutely true. Each, uh, each genre, including literary, has its tropes and, and is loyal to following them in the most part. Um, when I started mixing genres, nobody else was doing it. And it led to enormous resistance back in the 70s and 80s. Actually, it always has led to resistance. I don't know until my current publisher whether people have gotten comfortable with it or not, but the reading public has gotten comfortable with it uh, because multiple genres uh, touch multiple issues of our lives and crossing them, which more and more people do now, is a way to reach uh, people on different levels uh, and different kind of uh, attitudes and cares that they have. Crossing genres sometimes means um, crossing uh, fictional identities. Uh, Krentz, for example, writes under a number of different names. You have historically written under other names. You don't need to anymore. Um, do you need different names as a writer to write different genres? No. Uh, when I was starting out and I would write even the slightest different kind of story. It would be within the same genre as the last one had been, but there would be this, this sort of attitude from your agent, your editor, your publisher, well, this is too different. And readers like the same thing time after time. So you will need to create another name when you're writing this. Uh, and I was young, stupid, poor, and trying to make a living. And I took that to be true and I created quite a number of names. I think there were eight at one point. Uh, some of them only ever wrote a book or two because I lost interest in that type of book. Uh, as a consequence, when I became successful under my own name, I said, you know, some of these books are just fine. Uh, there's others I would rather weren't in print now, but some of these I would put into print under my name. I was highly advised not to do that because that would spell an end to my accelerating career because some of these books were too different. But in fact, the very first one we put under my name that had been under a pen name went on to be at the top of the paperback list for six weeks and sold over 2 million copies in a year. And we found that judiciously choosing the better books and putting them, my name on them didn't make any difference. People they liked those books, no matter what name was on them. But it was common wisdom in publishing that that would not work. Much common wisdom is common, but not wise. 
Yeah, you you uh, have to give you a few drinks and you can tell me what you really think of the publishing industry. Um, I know uh, you, you noted that you threatened to leave one of your publishers if they wouldn't stop putting the word horror in your books. Is that a horrible word for you associated with your literature, horror? What, what, what's the problem with the word horror? Uh, I dislike labels in general. Uh, and this was in the early days of the career. And that was the hot genre of the moment. What I kept saying to the publisher was, yes, but there is no horror in this book. This is a standard piece of, uh, not necessarily standard in its approach, but it is standard in how people think of a suspense novel or a comic novel. I've written a number of comic novels, which are anathema to the publishing community when your reputation is with something else. Uh, they have the attitude that uh, if you write a comic novel, that also will be the end of your career. But I began to mix comedy in with the suspense and got away with it for a lot of years. Um, so I sort of have traveled away from your question, but um, it was horror that I particularly disliked because at that time, a lot of horror was very gory, very bloody and misanthropic. And I did not write very gory, very bloody uh, fiction. In fact, I'd spoke out against it in a number of public forums uh, in the trend in those days to go into what was called splatter fiction. I thought it was misanthropic and misogynistic, most of it, and I didn't want any connection to it. It was a battle that took me years to accomplish, but eventually uh, I sort of won the day. I think I like this term. I hadn't heard the term splatter fiction. I think it's back in fashion. It probably has a different word, a more euphemistic word to describe it. Um, you, you're described uh, in Amazon as um, a suspense writer, and I think that those words are used by your publisher. Uh, is that fair? Do you see yourself as a master of suspense, if there is a word, particularly in terms of this uh, new book, um, The House at the End of the World. I is it a suspense book? Well, it certainly has suspense, but I'd like to make the point uh, that suspense is key to all our lives. We don't know what's going to happen to us tomorrow, next week, or a minute from now, in fact. Uh, so all fiction that is really speaks to the human condition is going to have a large suspense factor to it. Uh, I've never cared for any label, suspense, thriller. Um, I'd rather they just call it fiction. Uh, I would call The House at the End of the World, which has an element of, oh, well, let's say sci-fi element, if you will. Um, but I would just rather say what it is is a novel about, and then what is it about? In this case, it's about how the ruling class has sort of failed us uh, for many decades now and how this woman at the core of the story, Katie, whose life has been literally destroyed by the policies of the ruling class, she leaves her uh, community. She goes to live on an island, isolate, uh, on, alone on that little spit of land, and tries to lose herself in her art. But she finds out that when the ruling class has gone astray, you can't hide from what they'll do to you. That's really what the, uh, the novel is about in my mind. And, uh, and then there's suspense in it. 
So I'd rather there was no, uh, there was no label on it, but I re I've come in time to realize it's human nature to want to label everything. And you can only fight so many battles. And if I'm going to fight one about suspense, I wouldn't care to fight it anyway, because I do know my novels always have that element of suspense in them. Uh, you, the way you describe the novel and the way it reads, you capture, I think, two aspects of the current zeitgeist. The first is the sense, the fear of the end of days, of the ap apocalyptic quality of life in the 2020s, particularly associated with the environment. And the second is, as you suggested earlier, the irresponsibility of the ruling class, the global ruling class, but particularly the American ruling class. This return, ironically, tragically, to an aristocratic version of America when it was a country designed supposedly in the first place to be uh, against aristocracy. Um, as a writer, do you see yourself as a mirror for those zeitgeists? Are you in the business of trying to deepen it? Um, I never want to uh, guide the reader. Uh, I just want to sort of express my own feelings about uh, what we're all going through in the context of the story that people will find entertaining. Um, so I don't know that I would say uh, I have the power to deepen anything. I do have, I think, the ability to cite what for many people are their deep concerns about the society they're living in. Uh, and I don't shrink away from that part of it. Sometimes it's mistaken to be political. Uh, politics is an opiate. Uh, I don't think it solves much of any problems, no matter which side you're on. And in our current uh, sort of almost oligarchic uh, setup, it certainly isn't solving any problems. You seem angry, Dean, in your own way. Uh, are you channeling that that anger? And is it perhaps best done in, in your genre fiction in contrast to, say, literary fiction, which always seems to be angry, but as a form, maybe anger doesn't work very well? I don't think it does. Uh, it's, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's anger so much as... Uh, Disappointment? Disappointment, yes. Disappointment with how people who have power over others use it for their own ends rather than for the benefit of those they claim to be representing. And there's a great sadness in that. Uh, it's not worth being angry about because you can't change it. At least I can't change it. Uh, it will change when many, many people have decided they can't live under that kind of system anymore and will change it. I don't even mean revolution. I mean the kind of change that comes societally, that comes culturally, and that happens almost under the radar. Um, and it's that to which I think I speak. Uh, and not so much in an angry way as, yes, in a sad way. Um, um, yeah, well, that's sort of, I may be wrong. Maybe I'm the most angry man you've met, but uh, I don't think so. Well, I don't think there's anything wrong with anger. Um, it's better to be angry than indifferent. Uh, mm. Is human agency the heart of your philosophy? The book is about, as you say, a, a woman who finds herself on the house at the end of the world, and it's about how she 
manifests her agency. Is it a reminder still, Dean, that we matter, that we count, that we shape the future? Absolutely. She has the capacity in her despair. She thinks she lacks it. Uh, when she moves to this island in a state of despair, uh, she'd be the last one to say she will accomplish what she accomplishes by the end of the story. But I have, uh, I have great faith in people uh, uh, when they don't spend their life living an ideology, when they spend their life living it for the others around them. Uh, and I've known many people that way. Then they accomplish a great deal. In this story, Katie comes out of her despair really when she has to live for somebody else. Uh, uh, a young girl who shows up on her doorstep, uh, driven out of her own island, which is nearby. Uh, and in the midst of all this chaos, Katie becomes responsible for her and finds within herself the ability to address almost anything. And that's sort of the theme that goes on in most all of my fiction. Characters that seem like they have no agency I think of a young girl in a book called One Door Away from Heaven, who is a disabled girl with uh, wearing a leg brace and has a deformed hand and appears to be with uh, so dependent on a useless mother and an evil stepfather. But in the course of the story rises to uh, consider considerably magnificent heights. And I think that people do that all the time, but they aren't celebrated for it. We celebrate, in the most part, the wrong people. Dean, you're a, a dog lover, both in your own life and in your literature. There's a dog, heroic dog in, of a form in, in, in the book. Dogs don't have agency. What is it about dogs, do you think, that perhaps bring out the best qualities of us as humans? Um, well, there's the obvious thing that uh, uh, they, they give love and they don't expect anything in return. Uh, I have seen uh, also, because of my wife and I have worked for 30-some years with an organization called Canine Companions for Independence, which produces assistance dogs with, for people with extreme disabilities. Uh, and I have watched these dogs learn 80-some different tasks and perform them faithfully uh, and almost, in a sense, sacrifice the doggy life in return for the service life. And it, it makes you sometimes think, this, this puts the human species to shame, <laughs> sort of. And uh, in my own experience with dogs who give and give and give and hope to get in return, uh, I would say that is very much true of the, the species of dogs as a whole. And I think their capacity for, for agency of the type is there. We just don't recognize it. There is greater intelligence in dogs than we often give credit for. And I know that Bonnie Bergen founded the idea of assistance dogs as opposed for guiding eyes for the blind. One said to me, I am convinced that dogs can learn nearly anything. And she actually proved that by teaching them dogs to read. And that sounds impossible, but she took all the many, many tasks that she had taught dogs to do and she put them on flashcards. And she very quickly taught the dog to recognize the word for what it meant. And if that's not reading, I don't know what is. 
the world is much more mysterious than we give it credit for. And dogs have a mysterious quality that I think some of us are almost afraid to recognize. You present the book as um, a morality tale in a way of a world gone bad. Uh, and you indicate a degree of surprise or disappointment with that. You yourself have had an extraordinary life. Uh, one piece, one podcast featuring you described your life story as extraordinary. It is extraordinary. You, you had a very unfortunate childhood. You were horribly bullied by, by your father. You saw the worst side of, of the human condition. How have you remained, Dean, an optimist? How have you remained so cheerful? Uh, part of the answer to that is I don't know. Uh, I, I was always, I had a very bad childhood, but I hasten to say I wasn't a sad child. I was actually, I had an aunt who kept telling me, you're too happy for your own good, essentially given your circumstances. Uh, she was, uh, she had her own problems, obviously. Uh, I think partly it was growing up, I had, my mother was very sickly, but you know, to the extent she could be in a very bad marriage, she was supportive of me. Um, and uh, that was a part of it. But also a part of it was uh, I would watch my father and all of his problems and what his behavior led to. And I could see, even as a child, it didn't lead anywhere good, that evil could win in the short run. But in the long run, it was certain to bring you a catastrophic life. And that awareness was with me so young. And then I got to, I, I consider this a grace that was bestowed on me. Uh, my father, at one point, my wife and I had moved to California. My father was in Pennsylvania. We felt great relief because he wouldn't be knocking on our door at two in the morning, uh, drunk and uh, in need of something and dangerous because he's always had a weapon of one kind or another and a threat to use it. But we were on the here a year when somebody called me and said, your father is destitute. He has less than a year to live. Uh, you've got to send him money. And we realized sending him money he only went and spent it in a bar room the same day he got it and bought drinks for everybody or chased women with it. And it was gone within a day or two. So we made a deal with him. We moved him west. We took over support of him, put him in an apartment and did what he had never done to my mother and me, which was support him when he needed it. Uh, that was a decision we made together so that we would never follow the path that he had followed. That was a lesson. I had learned, don't do what he did, do the opposite of it. Uh, at the time, we thought he'd live a year. He lived 14 years. Uh, it was a grueling 14 years. But I also think it was a great grace because it gave me time to try to reconcile with him and to come to the awareness reconciliation was never going to be possible because eventually he was diagnosed as sociopathic and there is no reconciliation with the sociopathic personality. So in the end, I think it was that experience that gave me, that kept me very positive about life uh, because the alternative I could see and I didn't want to pursue that. Do you think you would like to write a memoir? Uh, I've, I've done little bits and pieces of one. My wife insists that I get to it soon. I wrote a memoir of 
involving our dog, Trixie, our first golden retriever. Uh, and I think I would like to write a memoir that focuses more on the career and, uh, and the lessons learned in life, less than the minutia of day-to-day -day living that some of these things end up in. Uh, I think there's a lot I have to say to young writers or to young people in general that live with a lot of myths about how if you have some new talent, you have some new ability, you have something to give. The world is eager to take you in and make you successful. In my experience, not the case. It was an endless struggle day by day all these years. From the outside, it looks like a smooth arc upward. Uh, so it would be rather interesting to tell the story of how all this actually happened. And it's quite funny. Um, it's, uh, it's been said, I think it was James Thurber, that humor is catastrophe remembered in tranquility. And that is certainly the case of our life. There was a lot of chaos and catastrophe, but in tranquility, in the years that followed, much of it has seemed to be very funny. And I would like to, uh, I'd like to be able to capture that in a memoir. Well, if you do do a memoir, um, Dean, you've got to come back on the show and discuss it, although you've sort of sketched some of it out now. You know, one of your first hits was Demon Seed, um, uh, maybe more of a genre book about AI. It got turned into a spectacular movie featuring Julie Christie. Um, it was about AI. Do you think it was a, a, a prescient book, given how big a deal AI is, particularly in Silicon Valley these days? Uh, I recently wrote a book called uh, The Big Dark Sky that has AI as one of its central issues. Uh, I, I go back to Stephen Hawking, who said, artificial intelligence will be the death of humanity. And I think there is potentially truth in that. Uh, I do have some faith that humanity tends to, to manage the catastrophes it creates and come up with the resolutions for them. But this one is coming at us very fast, and I don't think a lot of careful thought has been given to what it ultimately means. Uh, and I'm some days I'm rather glad I'm the age I am. Yeah, it's a really interesting subject, and I think particularly in reference to you. You know, you've you've written these these uh, books: five hundred million sold, thirty-eight million, uh, thirty-eight different languages, many different books, a certain kind of style. The latest. Um, hysteria in Silicon Valley is for a, uh, an AI called ChatGPT, a, a generative language engines, which essentially learns the style of an artist and then spits it back out. Nick Cave wasn't very impressed with GPT Chat's production of a, a Nick Cave kind of song. This is going to have a, a huge impact on the publishing industry. Last week, I had Stephen uh, Rubin on the show, he used to run Doubleday published Grisham, many other bestsellers. I'm sure you know him. He has a new book out, Words and Music. And I asked uh, Rubin about the idea of AI replacing authors. Here, here's what uh, Stephen said. Doesn't make you miserable, nothing will. What about the latest um, mania in Silicon Valley for AI chatbots, chat GPT? I know you're not a big tech guy, but I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah, uh, technology a, that allows no way no way no way i just i just turned the page i just don't deal 
Give me a fucking break. I'm, I'm quoting Stephen, of course. Those aren't my words, Steen. Do you agree with Stephen? Do you think that um, this latest wave of technology will be able to, for example, package up the style of Dean Koontz, learn how he writes and replicate his literature? I'm not lying awake nights worrying about it. I, I know how long it took me to struggle toward it. Uh, aside from that, I would say publishing has over the years embraced something sort of like this. Uh, I've seen it happen periodically where they fall into the habit of bringing aboard a book packager who doesn't really write the novels or whatever published, but oversees their production with a series of other writers. And there's a little bit of, of that uh, is artificial intelligence, if you will. Uh, and I never have thought is good for book publishing. What's, what readers relate to is a unique voice that I don't think has everything to do with style. It does in part, but not completely. And there will be some who diss this whole idea, but I believe in the existence of the soul. And I believe it's the soul that speaks through your writing, through your music. And the AI is not going to have a soul. Yeah, the AI has no flesh. It has no human experience except what is programmed into it, which is not real human experience. And that is never going to change. So you may get some interesting interpretations of other writers uh, done by AI systems, but they're never going to be the real thing. And I do think there will be a lot of people who identify the difference. It's interesting you use this word soul. It's a word that uh, has been, for better or worse, appropriated by the major Western religions. Can one believe in a soul, Dean, and not believe in God? Uh, I think that's a bit tough. <laughs> I think you have to believe that uh, we're living in an anthropic universe, that uh, it's miraculous that it supports life. The chances of it supporting life are 10 to 120 the power. And if you were to write that out in standard mathematics, it would fill half the known universe in paper. Uh, there's very little chance that all of the uh, requirements for an anthropic universe would happen by chance. That said, our understanding of God uh, and exactly what God is uh, varies through every religion. And all of us have different attitudes about what that may be. Uh, but I have had so many mysterious experiences in life. I sometimes say I won't write about them until I'm so old I don't care who makes fun of me. But uh, I've had mysterious experiences that tell me there's more to life than what we see. There's more to the world than what we see. And uh, I'm rather fascinated to see what that will become when my time here ends.